At 8.20pm Eastern on Monday, the Associated Press announced that Hillary Clinton had scored the number of delegates she needed to clinch the nomination. That's going to make her the first woman in history to carry the democratic standard into a general election. Your efforts have produced a strong majority of the popular vote, victories in a majority of the contests, and after tonight, a majority of pledged delegates. Bernie Sanders did his best to stop her. He got more than 10 million votes, and he lit a real fire among young people and left-leaning voters. He became an unlikely national icon for Americans dissatisfied with the Obama-Clinton era of democratic politics. And despite the math staring him in the face, Sanders isn't ready to concede the fight just yet. I am pretty good in arithmetic, and I know that the fight in front of us is a very, very steep fight. But we will continue to fight for every vote and every delegate we can get. This is Special Relationship. I'm John Prado from The Economist. And I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. Today, I look back at the Sanders campaign, what's next for Bernie, and what his brand of leftism means in the U.S. and the rest of the world. Bernie Sanders and his campaign is in many ways a new phenomenon in American politics. But look back and you can see that the door swung open for the rise of a candidate like him a few years ago. Joining us now to try and figure out what happens next on the left is Howard Dean, the former governor of Vermont. His 2004 run for the presidency set much of the foundation for what's going on in left-flank democratic politics and campaigning today. And he's now supporting Hillary Clinton for the presidency. Governor Dean, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So we wanted to ask you a little bit about Hillary Clinton uh, and whether you think she's a different candidate now than the person who ran in 2008. She's a very different candidate, um, I think, uh, in a variety of ways. First of all, I actually think the Sanders campaign, the Sanders challenge has been great for Hillary. Uh, it's sharpened her. It's, uh, I think, brought a whole series of issues that are critical to the American people, mostly having to do with income inequality, economic, the economic stress on the uh, working class and middle class of the United States. Um, so I do think she's a different candidate. I think she's she has an incredible capacity to learn and is probably the smartest person in my lifetime to run for the presidency. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I think this has been good for her, uh, but it's been very tough on her, of course. How do you mean? Well, this is a tough campaign. Bernie's run a great campaign. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a very rigorous thing to go through a presidential race all the way to the convention. Which she has done before, obviously. And, you know, we were thinking in uh, 2008 when you had her versus uh, Barack Obama, they were fairly close on the political spectrum. And so uh, do you think this time with Bernie Sanders in the race that that's affected her differently? Do you think she's been pulled a little bit more towards the left this time? I think she's been required to address uh, issues that she hasn't addressed before, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, she has to address what she wants to do about the banks and Wall Street, which really are an ongoing problem. Uh, she's had to address what to do about the enormous income gap. You know, capitalism works fine as long as everybody benefits, but in the last 20 years or so, not everybody has benefited. And that's a worldwide phenomenon, as you well know, uh, as we see the Brexit vote, which is a very similar phenomenon to the Trump slash Sanders vote. Governor Dean, there's been quite a lot of attention paid to Bernie Sanders' supporters in this cycle. You know, he's won around 10 million votes. There's been all the Bernie or bust stuff. Do you think that he's 
created or kind of revealed something new on the left in American politics? Or was it actually always there? And it's just that because of his style of campaigning, he's brought it to the surface. I think he's revealed something new to most people. But of course, I've seen him in action for 40 years. And the left is divided into two categories. There there are left-leaning people, which one of of which I would uh, say I was. Uh, And then there are the hard left left over from the 60s who really don't participate in the two-party system very much. That's a very small minority, although a very vocal minority of support. And that's where the Bernie or bust people come from. Uh, I do believe that 80 percent of the people who vote for Bernie Sanders uh, in the primaries are going to end up voting for Hillary Clinton uh, because they're practical, pragmatic uh, people and people don't like to waste their votes. But I think uh, of the 20 percent remaining, a significant number, maybe 15 percent, will vote for Trump. Uh, Bernie's always had a coalition with working class people uh, who are conservative, and that's been true in Vermont uh, for most of his career. And then finally, there'll be five percent who either vote for a third party candidate or don't vote at all. And what do you think after he eventually drops out? What do you think the lasting effect he will have on American politics will be? And does he leave something behind, or does he his movement sort of vanish? Well, that's uh, up to him. It's a wonderful question, and that's really up to him. And this is a critical juncture, which I'm not sure he is, uh, has yet understood. Um, how he leaves this race and what he does afterwards matters a lot. He could end up being the next Ralph Nader, who deprives the Democrats of the Congress and ends up uh, electing, a, a, you know, a, <laughs> I don't know what to call Donald Trump, but certainly nothing flattering. Um He could be uh, somebody, if he sustains his movement, as we did in our campaign, he could be very, very successful in in changing the course of American politics. And we just don't know yet. And I think he's struggling with that himself. Uh, The race is over. Uh, He doesn't hasn't acted like it is. Uh, The sooner he gets to comes to grips with what he's going to do between now and November, uh, um, the sooner he we find out what his legacy is going to be. We simply don't know that. And he has to decide that. I guess that's a big difference between your run in 2004 and, and his. I mean, one of many differences, perhaps, but that you are a lifelong Democrat, right, who comes from within the party traditions. He kind of borrowed the Democratic Party mantle uh, for this primary, and he doesn't have the same affection for the party that you do, perhaps. It's not so much that I have such affection for the party. I was ready to throw the party over when I lost because I was – leading the pack, and then the four people who were following me all, you know, connived together to undo me. Well, that's politics. You know, you have to remember that politics is a substitute for war, so that's to be expected. Al Gore actually helped me through my difficulty by saying, you know, this is really not about you. It's about the country, Uh, which took me about five seconds to realize that I had to um, succumb to the inevitable. Uh, And no matter how fair or unfair I thought it was, it is about the country. Um, so it wasn't really an affection for the Democratic Party, although I am a Democrat. It was the, re- it was the realization there was something much more important than me and my personal feelings uh, that was at stake here. And I think that's the hard realization that you have to get through in order to do the right thing. So as far as what Bernie Sanders is, is going to do going forward, you know, presumably he wants to have some sort of lasting legacy. But if, as you say, Governor Dean, there's this substantial number of people who might just be completely disappointed and throw their votes to Donald Trump, what can he do to encourage them not to do that and to, you know, to carry on his tradition, so to speak, instead of bailing out? 
Well, the ones that are going to vote for Trump are going to vote for Trump anyway. I mean, Bernie has always had a core of, of working class conservatives in his camp uh, in Vermont, for example. I've run in elections at the same time he has for other offices. He gets a lot more votes than I do in the conservative parts of the state uh, because he does have that tremendous attraction to working class people who usually uh, vote uh, more conservatively in this country as a whole. Um, what I would recommend, although I obviously haven't been asked for advice, is to do what I did. It was just to set up a parallel organization, which is still very strong today. Uh, we set up something called Democracy for America, which is run by my brother, which ironically has endorsed Bernie Sanders. Uh, but uh, if he did that, he you know he's, he has a mailing list that's five times bigger than mine. So if he did that, um, he would really have a long-term impact. But that requires a lot of effort, and, and it also requires doing some things he's never done before. He's never run with a party. There's a progressive party in Vermont. He doesn't go on the ballot as a progressive. He goes on the ballot as an independent every time. This is not a guy who likes organizations, uh, but there has to be an organization in or order to have a long-term effect. Otherwise, he becomes a historical footnote. The Sanders supporters who will switch to Donald Trump must be a very small subset, don't you think? I mean, if you're a no. burn-your-bust person, you, you are politically engaged. And if you're a politically engaged person on the left, once it comes to a choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in November, I would have thought most, despite what they're saying now, won't really hesitate. That's true. The vast majority of Bernie's support are young people who are, can't vote for Donald Trump and won't vote for Donald Trump. We're not talking about that. There's a significant... Look, what's going on in this country is really very similar to what's going on in Europe and particularly in Britain. There are a lot of working class people who are fed up with the whole system. They're fed up with all kinds of politicians. They don't think their lives are getting better. And as, instead of wanting to reset the table, they would like to kick the table over. And thou, those... Bernie has always had that constituency in Vermont as long as I've known him. It's people who don't give a damn where they are on the political spectrum. They want somebody who's going to go kick the table over. That is what is motivating some all, um, a, a huge percentage of Donald Trump's vote and some percentage of Bernie's vote. Um, and those people are going to vote for Trump no matter what we do. I'm not worried about that. We were never going to get those people no matter what. Uh, what matters is the percentage of remaining people who will get out and vote because the vast majority of them will vote for Hillary. And that's going to be the key. And that is where Bernie has a big role to play. He can motivate his people to do the right thing for the country because the right thing is not Donald Trump. What do you think happens to us if Donald Trump gets elected? I think it's very difficult. Um, I, you know, this is a big country. Uh, we recovered much more quickly from the, from the Great Recession than, than most people because we're so decentralized. Economic policy is really not made in Washington except by the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and we were fortunate to have a very good one. It's really made by the business community. Uh, we're very decentralized. So economically speaking, I don't think Trump's going to have a big effect, except on the stock market, which will, of course, lose all confidence. I ter I'm terribly worried about foreign policy. Foreign policy is very difficult. Uh, it, it requires steadiness. It requires thoughtfulness. These are not things, uh, qualities that one would attribute to Donald Trump. So I think internationally, the country's in great danger if Trump wins, becomes president. I don't worry about things like the economy in the long term. Do you think this election, you said that, that Bernie Sanders and what he's done in the campaign has been good for Hillary Clinton in the sense, I guess, that it was, it was challenging and it prepared her maybe for the, the rigors of a general election. But overall, looking at this cycle compared to what you saw maybe when you ran for president yourself, should we be proud of what we've seen here in American politics or should we not? I think you, 
uh, I'm certainly not p- proud of the sentiments unleashed on the right uh, for the by the Trump people. I think there's been blatant appeals to bigotry and racism and homophobia and misogyny. And it's just, you know, it's one of the worst campaigns we've seen since the 1840s or the 1860s. But um, again, we're not different than what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, You've got exactly the same dog whistling going on uh, in the European countries, uh, including Britain. Uh, You know, this is a a time of great uh, unrest in the democratic capitalist world. Uh, which be and in my view, it's because capitalism is out of whack. It's like a rugby game with no rules. And there we have to have rules that make capitalism work for everybody. It means new tax codes so that people can make money investing in, in infrastructure and housing instead of d- derivatives and collateralized mortgage obligations. The system is out of whack. And the message we're getting from our public in in the Western democracies is we if we don't fix it, something worse will come. And Trump is the something worse. And so is uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, so is the AKP party. Uh, yeah, there's there's lots of parties that represent around Europe and Turkey as obviously an example where democracy is rapidly disappearing. And these are problems, uh, but they're problems because the leadership hasn't responded uh, to the needs of the public. So maybe the natural question then, going back to the whole issue of third parties, is if what this election has shown us is that people are so frustrated and so angry with the choices that they have now, do you think that this election will lead to an actual legitimate third major party movement? Not in the United States. It's too difficult to start a third party in the United States. But I think what you, if Trump loses, I think you're going to see a major rehab of the Republican Party. They are too far to the right to be in step with the average American uh, and they have too much uh, relationship to special interests with lots of money. Um, so in order for them to win elections, they're going to have to go back to the middle to, a public, to appeal to working class and middle class people. They had that in the 80s. They don't have it anymore. They're going to have to reconstruct themselves. Governor Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Bernie Sanders may have fallen short, but over in Europe, there are plenty of examples of politicians like him becoming party leaders, and in some cases, even prime ministers or presidents. One of them is Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the British Labour Party. Like Sanders, Corbyn spent a couple of decades as a fringe figure on the far left of the British Parliament. Then last year, he picked up enough support from activists to become leader of the Labour Party at the age of 66. Sam Knight is a writer who spent a lot of time hanging out with Jeremy Corbyn for a profile he wrote in The New Yorker recently. He's here with us to talk about Corbyn, Sanders, and what's up with the left of the left. Sam, in your profile, Corbyn comes across as pretty uninterested in policy and somebody who's really into campaigning and and causes. Is that one of the secrets of his success? Um, Yes, I I think it is, really, because I think with... With Jeremy Corbyn, certainly he has um, a manner, a bearing, which is which is very intimate and friendly and authentic, which allows people to kind of project a lot of things onto him that they want to that they want to see, rather than specific policy sort of doctrines or, or, or great things being spelled out by him. I mean, when when you talk to him, it's that kind of position is explained as part of the culture of 
of the left and particularly the kind of the campaigning left, which is about ideas coming up from below and grassroots policy making. And I think that that even though that's kind of a language that is almost from the 60s or the 70s, now translates quite well into crowdsourcing and people sending in ideas like during his leadership uh, campaign last year he circulated 13 policy documents which were just supposed to be discussion documents for supporters to to send in all their comments and 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 his team now are apparently still wading through all of those all of those ideas that came from the public that he will now uh, eventually weave into his into his policy platform uh, so for Americans who are not kind of familiar with his his politics um, and are trying to kind of imagine, you know, sort of whether he's analogous to Sanders or not. I think I, th- this was this was sort of the the analogy that I kind of worked with in my head during my reporting, which was that during the 1970s, as a response to sort of decline of industrial manufacturing in, in the UK, labor found itself in a kind of left-wing wilderness wanting to pursue sort of very 20th century statist uh, industrial policy. And then Margaret Thatcher took the ground from beneath their feet in the 1980s in much the way that that Ronald Reagan did to the Democratic Party uh, in the US. And then Bill Clinton and Tony Blair are these very analogous figures who nominally on the left moved their parties right into the center and found a kind of an electoral winning formula that kind of retained a lot of the kind of historic kind of uh, attributes of of the left. And, and, and Corbyn is very much one of those figures who was left behind or who never made that journey. So the easiest way to think of him is as sort of someone sort of sitting on the beach when the tide went out uh, in kind of 1979 to 1983. And he's still there. And like here we are, you know, 33 years later, and, 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 and the tide has come back in, if you know what I mean. So I think you get something similar going on with Sanders supporters. You've got some who are sort of remnants of the kind of 1960s, 1970s radicalism. And they have formed this kind of alliance with, you know, millennials, for want of a better word, you know, kind of a lot younger supporters here. And, and it's a surprise in a way that they they seem to agree on, on a lot of stuff. Tell us a bit, how much time did you spend? I mean, it's a very deeply reported piece, right? How much time did you spend hanging out with Jeremy Corbyn? And, and what does one, you know, what did he spend his time doing when he was in your company and doing and talking about? So I spent, I probably spent a couple of months seeing him speak and interact with the public kind of as many times as I could during that time. So there is a variety of kind of speeches and campaigning and kind of canvassing sessions that I went along to. And then and then we had about we had about three hours in total just talking one on one in a couple of sessions. So I kind of I got some time with him with him then. And he's 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 kind. He's attentive. He listens to your questions. He, I have to say that in, at no point during our, our our time together did he ever really pitch me. He never said, "This is where the country is. This is what's gone wrong. This is where we want to get to. This is how we're going to get there." Which I think is a kind of the classic politician's kind of default mode. Um, and he never did that, which is obviously part of his appeal, but also part of the kind of slightly wandering nature of 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 being in his company and and listening to him talk you know i i i remember sort of asking him 
have we have we lost faith in Britain in in the ability of the the state to meaningfully intervene in our lives and make our lives better? Uh, and that kind of cued into a, like a vast anecdote about the the restructuring of British Leyland in 1976, which I had no idea was coming. I don't know if you, anyway. So yeah, so it's, it's 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 it was a particular experience. It sounds like from what you're saying that Corbyn has sort of aged pretty well, that his ideas have come back into currency or that they are fulfilling some need that people had then and they that they have now. I think, do you see that being common with Bernie Sanders as well? Yeah, I do. I, I, do, see, I do see that. I mean, the kind of, the, the critique of Corbyn, which I think does not really hold uh, for Sanders, is that he's not someone who's ever exercised any executive authority. He's never been a mayor like Bernie Sanders was a mayor. He's never sponsored major pieces of legislation. He he doesn't really have a kind of a parliamentary or a kind of legislative legislative record in, in the same way. He is much more a figure of protest of someone who's been outside the protest, uh, outside the outside parliament almost. So, so you get this kind of weird situation at the moment where Corbyn's supporters will say that Corbyn has called every great issue of the last 35 years correctly, you know, apartheid, uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland, the kind of the deregulation of our economy and the kind of overwhelming influence of the financial sector, all of those things they will say that Corbyn has consistently uh, seen coming like a kind of profit-like figure. And yet to people particularly in the, the centre of the Labour Party, they would say, well, actually, you weren't in government or in or on the shadow cabinet wrestling with those things on a day-to-day basis, trying to make compromises, trying to, to, to actually affect change. You were just standing outside the building being right all the time. Um, but, I, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very complicated with, with someone like Corbyn because it's very easy to, to criticise him and, 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 to, and to point out his... Uh, his deficiencies, particularly inside Parliament, which is a very kind of dog-eat-dog, Etonian, British, upper-crusty kind of environment. And yet he has connected with the public in a way that no other mainstream politician has in the UK for several years. And it was, as you know, I tried to sort of say earlier, one of the weird things about doing this profile is I'd spend, like Jeremy Corbyn does, the first half of the week in Westminster or London where he's getting clobbered by the media, getting told by all these old hands that he's rubbish uh, and the polls are disastrous. And then sometime on sort of Thursday afternoon, Jeremy Corbyn has a cup of tea and then starts heading out into the country and will go to meetings and will meet members of the public and will spend hours on street corners interacting with the public in this kind of, you know... I don't really want to say euphoric because we're in Britain, but in this kind of very warm and, and uh, warm and meaningful way that no other politician is doing at the moment. So they'd, they'd cut their hands off to to hang out with ordinary members of the public in the same way that Jeremy Corbyn can, and yet and yet he he is seen as not particularly capable of of being an effective opposition. Sam Knight, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And you can read Sam's profile of Jeremy Corbyn, which is called Enter Left in The New Yorker. That's it for this week. Join us in another two weeks on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of Special Relationship. I'm at John Prado on Twitter. Celeste is at Celeste Katz NYC. Or you could also leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. We read those too. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike. I'm John Prado at The Economist. See you in two weeks.